All right. Second Thessalonians, we're going to uh, we're going to take six to the end, and you're not actually going to hear me like preach uh, on the benediction, uh, which would be uh, verses sixteen and seventeen. We'll get to that at the end of the service. Uh, we'll just close with that. All right. So if you if you see me close my Bible and sit down and pray, like don't be like, dude, you missed like two verses. No. Well, we're, we're just going to go ahead and proclaim that the way that it was proclaimed to them at the end of this letter at the end of our service, okay? Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verse 6 to the end. Now we commend, command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And I'm just going to go ahead and unpack this really quick the word tradition when he's saying that what does he mean he means that which he is about to say in the next few verses in other words the example that they uh that, that they displayed by the way that they lived that would be the tradition he's talking about all right uh and here it is verse seven uh, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not burden, be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. There's the tradition. Okay? For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is some pretty interesting stuff, quite a way to close a letter. Right. Um, but uh, th this is the way that Paul's doing it. He, uh, and, and again, the primary reason for the letters, first and second Thessalonians, especially second Thessalonians, was um, to deal with false teachings or teachers concerning the day of the Lord. OK, so concerning the return of Christ. That's really why the letter was written. Uh, the second one here. Um, but now he's obviously at the end running through a couple things that are worth running through since he's putting, you know, uh, a pen to paper, uh, one being that the Christian is not to be idle, and we could say lazy too, but it's actually more than that. But you'll probably hear me say it back and forth uh, as we wait for the day of the Lord. Um, so, so Paul going into the subject with these guys, it's most certainly not um, just adding random filler as if he needed something else to say before he closes out his letter. That's probably not it at all. This is, he's actually probably hitting on something that undoubtedly was very intentional and very appropriate for this church at this time. And of course, it's uh, appropriate for, it's applicable to us as well, okay? So um, at the close of the first letter to these guys, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 uh, through 14, we read this. We ask, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to, est to esteem them highly in love because of their work. So he's talking about mainly the leaders here, okay? Uh, be at peace among yourselves, he says. And then he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay? This is not a coincidence that this was mentioned to the Thessalonians in, in the first letter. He says there, admonish the idle, meaning that this was something that had been brought to their attention, obviously because there were those among them that were being idle. Okay? In fact, in verse 10 of today's text, right, if we look at it, it proves that this subject was something that Paul spent time addressing with them in the short amount of time that he was actually physically with them. Okay, that's what it says there. So this seems to be not a random subject is the point, but an actual uh, a pressing one, a critical one that needed to be addressed. Now, it's not clear as to why this tendency of idleness um, existed in the Thessalonian church. Like, we, we, don't, we don't know that. Uh, I do know that it's probably not just a Thessalonian problem. Like, this is something that uh, no matter what church you go to, wherever it's at, whatever period of history it lives in, you're going to find this type of person somewhere in that church or this group of people somewhere in that church. Um, but back then, uh, there are scholars that, that say that it existed here. It was a problem here because the day of the Lord was at hand. That that's the whole reason there were people that were, that, that, that were idle. So the thought would have been like, why work, right? Why bother with the business of the world when the world is about to end? You know, why get a job? Why do anything? And, and weirdly enough, depending on certain people's eschatology, I've actually seen this even in this day and age with certain people in the church sometimes where because of their eschatology, there's this imminency, there's this question of like Jesus can return at any second, right? And we're in the last days for sure, there's no doubt about it, so he is gonna return in any second, so why work? Like why, why be productive in anything? Let's just wait. Um, and so a lot of people believe that's why this was here in this church, this tendency is because they were thinking about the imminent uh, return of Christ. Uh, some believe uh, that it existed uh, in the church because of the amount of Greeks that were entering the church at that time. And uh, not to bag on Greeks, uh, I'm sh they're great. Uh, but uh, apparently at the time, they, 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 they thought that work was basically pointless. Had nothing to do with the return of the Lord. They just, they just lived uh, leisurely. Uh, they thought that, that, that work was overrated. You know? They took a lot of siestas. Yeah, during the day and, and didn't do much else. So kind of sounds like our current culture a little bit. You know, work is overrated. Um, and, and so why work when we can just uh, get what we need from other sources? And, of course, our government does a good job of trying to appease those people, um, which, is, which is part of the challenge. Um, but, yeah, it, a lot of people thought that it was, it was that tendency, that Greek influence that was coming into the church at the time is why it actually became uh, a growing problem there. The truth is it really doesn't matter as to if one of these or both of these speculations is true or not. The principle that Paul is putting uh, forward holds uh, either way, no matter what the, re what the, what the reason was. So he, he, no matter why, Paul is, is giving a life principle to, and here's who's being talked to here, Christians, the church, okay? Believers, those who are inside the church, we see that where? Verse 6, okay? We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother uh, who is walking in idleness, not according to the tradition that we gave you, right? So we've got uh, believers being talked to and talked about, all right? And, and, and to the Christian, he says basically this. If you're living this way, 
it's wrong and it needs to stop, okay? This is basically a rebuke here. We don't have to like guess at where Paul's falling on, on this whole principle and this whole subject. So um, he, he's basically talking to people who are or claim to be Christians in the church who can work but just won't. Who can work but just won't. People who are in the church to be served, not to serve, right? So um, idle Christians. And I want to make sure that we understand that as we look at this text, it's, it's really important that we understand um, there's a lot of reasons at any point in somebody's life why they are unable to work. That's a different thing. That's not what we're talking about here. There's, there's, there's times and reasons when people are simply unable to work. He's not speaking to whoever's not working for whatever reason. He's, he's speaking to those who can work but won't, all right? Those who can work but instead presume upon, for whatever reason, the labor of others to support their laziness and their idleness. And ultimately, here's what, what Paul has to say to that person. It's found in verse 10. If you're not willing to work, you ain't got to eat. The key word is, again, willing. Those who aren't willing to work, fine, don't eat. So, so let him, the one unwilling to work, not assume that he's entitled to reap the benefits or the harvest of the one that does. Okay? Instead, he should be ready to reap the consequences of not being willing to work. All right? So this is a universal uh, truth, word to the wise for all Christ followers everywhere. So let's talk really briefly real quick about uh, idleness. Okay? Um, idleness... Um, Again, it, it can be interpreted laziness, but it's actually a lot more than that, and we're going to see that in the text itself as we keep going. It, it's not simply a cultural tendency, is it? It's not just a Thessalonian thing, right? This is, this is a, a universal thing. This is a fallen human race, like, problem and tendency. Um, you ever heard the saying, a bad day fishing is better than the best day at work? Right? Like, that's a saying for a reason. You know what I mean? And, and I happen to like it. Um, <clears throat> or, or a bad day at the beach is better than a great day at the office. Right? Or that one too. Same thing. There's a reason that exists. We, we have this, this built-in idea that life should be about recreation and vacation. Okay? Um, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. You know? Where, where does that saying come from? Why, why do we say that? You know? Uh, where does that saying come from? We write songs. Like, everybody's working for the weekend, you know? Um, and I'm sorry for that. That's a horrible song to get stuck in your head. I think it was from the 80s, uh, so race it. But, like, we, like if, you just, if you just consider uh, the type of sayings that we have and the type of songs that we write, what exists in our pop culture, we have this infatuation with recreation and vacation, and work is obviously, you know, the, the bad thing. So, like, our, our joy and our hope and our source of stimulation is, is, is kind of built around not working. We form our entire financial strategies and our lives and our life plans around reaching a point of no longer having to work. It's called <laughs> retirement. It's called retirement, right? And, and, and part of the reason I believe that we, even as Christians, have fallen into kind of this, like, Work is bad, recreation is good, mindset is due to the notion that work is only a thing that's come about as a result of the fall. So, therefore, for its punishment, 
right? Equaling bad. And, and, and where do we find this, right? We find it in Genesis 3 where the fall of man occurs and, and we're then handed down sentences by God. First he goes to Satan and hands down his sentence and then he goes to the woman and hands down her sentence and then he goes to the man and hands down his sentence. And this is, uh, this is what God says uh, to the man. Cursed is the, br- is the ground because of you, right? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of Five thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So, so it's like life is work and then we die. Awesome. You know what I mean? And, and we don't want to accept that, right? Um, what many of us fail to realize, though, is that work is not a result of the curse, it is not a result of the curse. Prior to Genesis 3, pre-fall, pre-sin, we have Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, God commands Adam to have dominion over everything. This is something that is active, not passive. It's active. He commands man to subdue the earth. What does subdue mean? It means to overcome. It means to tame Right? So, so again, this is active. This is, this is actually what, what we would call work. What we would call work. And, and, and then we have Genesis chapter 2, uh, pre-fall, pre-sin, where God puts man in the garden to what? Work it. Keep it. So, so when we get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, post-fall, post-sin, work does not become the punishment like a lot of us were taught, but the difficulty in work becomes the punishment. It's, so, it's something completely different. So, so work, work is a result of the fall and the sentencing of, of, our, of Adam's actions has become a labor, a labor. That's the punishment. Just like the woman's sentence, her experience now in childbirth as a result of the fall uh, was, was that it, there would be labor involved in giving birth. It's not that she would start giving birth a whole different way than she would have pre-fall. Like God designed all that once for all. It's that now it would be laborious, like way more difficult, way more challenging than it would have been otherwise had the fall not entered. Same type idea. And labor is not fun. Amen? Like labor is not fun. Uh, I've never really met anybody that goes out and breaks their back, you know, sweating, uh, you know, wearing their bones out and is like, I just love this. You know what I mean? Uh, I think there are people that like work, that like, you know, accomplishing things. And it can feel good to even go out and accomplish something physically. But uh, when it comes to labor and toil, like, I, I, I just don't know anyone that's like, this is the coolest thing ever. You know? <laughs> I've, n- I've never met that person. So, so all that to say, work is not something to be avoided, especially for the Christian, especially for you and I. You and I should do work on this earth better than anybody else on this earth because of who we belong to and what we believe about it. You and I should be the best workers that exist on earth, right? But having said all that, let's go ahead and move on. Yeah, we're actually going to get into the text. We're gonna, uh, I'm, we'll, we'll move into basically three takeaways from this text this morning. So I want to make three points or, or things that help us to really zero in and, and walk away with that which we should in what Paul is saying in this text. Number one, okay, a good leader, so I'm talking to me or whoever leads, a good leader leads the church by example first. 
A good leader in the church, a good pastor, whatever you want to call him, leads first well. You see that in this text in verses 7 through 10, right? It says, uh, for, for you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. There's those words. We, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him eat. Paul's like, look at us. Look at what we did when we were with you. Pastors, leaders, apostles do not get a hall pass. They do not get a hall pass to not be fantastic workers and have a great work ethic, right? Um, even when, especially when it comes to work ethic, we do not get to stand up here and, and preach at you about what you should do in any area of your life without first doing it ourselves. That's what makes a good leader. Do as I say, not as I do does not apply in the pulpit. It does not apply in the pulpit, even though I would like it to. Just like with everything else that we preach, the first one on the beach, the first one on the beach, built bullets whizzing by should be the pastor. It should be the leader of the church. If the leader is proclaiming to you, serve more, give more, evangelize more, love your wife more, work harder more, do your job more to the glory of God better, then they are the leader to charge first. First. Paul's making it clear that they aren't just commanding this principle of good responsible work ethic upon the lazy or the idle, but that they have first demonstrated this principle or tradition to them while they were with them. They showed them what it looked like. They modeled it. And because I know the face of the door, especially down here, um, I mean, it's changed in both locations, um, but a lot of you don't know these things about us. Um, it's, I want to assure you, I guess, um, that we have attempted, as your pastors here, to display this, and, and, and we still are, uh, in many ways, um, as your leaders. And, and again, by doing this, it's not a boast. It's to let you know who we are. It, in, in fact, it's no more a boast than what Paul is doing here. Okay? It's just, it's just to, to remind or to refresh um, that we had a tradition that we have tried to live by and pass on to. Um, when the door started, it started in our living room with 20 people. We had no idea what God was going to do or what it was going to look like we had zero thoughts of money or being financed. We had nobody sending us with money to do what we were doing. All we knew is that God invited us to do this really cool thing that he was up to. And we were just willing to do it. The three pastors all worked real jobs, right? I owned a chimney sweeping business that I owned and operated. So I spent my days on roofs and ladders breathing carbon. You know, that's just what I did. And, and I was okay with that. Uh, I, I had no thoughts of doing anything different, but the thought that God would, would use me as a piece of, of a new work in a neighborhood was a really cool idea. And so we started with a few people, and um, when we moved publicly into a building that God had uh, provided, we got into a lease, and it was the pastor's names that went onto that lease, and um, it, was, it was largely us for a long time who were um, paying the rent and paying for coffee and paying for lights. To, and you know what? We did not care. We didn't even think about it at the time. Like, oh, this is a bummer. It'd be nice if someone else helped. 
Like we weren't even thinking that way. We were happy to be there and to be able to uh, be doing what we were doing. We went, it, it was uh, five years in to the door uh, before one of the pastors, Brent, finally was at, quit his job and we brought him on. Five years. So for five years, all of us were basically what you would call bivocational. Actually, we were, there was a single vocation because we weren't getting paid from the other, but we were doing two things full time, getting, getting paid by one of them. And we were okay for it. We, we were okay to do it. We were happy um, to do it. That's changed, you know, over the years. Praise God, it's, it's been a cool thing. Um, but, I, but I do want you to know, and we thought about this uh, two years ago when the whole lockdown happened and the whole face of the church changed. And it's, it's going to remain changed. We sat down one day and we looked at each other across the table and said, are, are we willing to do whatever needs to be done to continue pastoring, even if the money stops? And it was like, of, like it wasn't even it wasn't even a discussion. It was like, yeah, we would we would easily, quickly, willingly go back to doing what we used to do. We will go back and find jobs, right? We will do whatever needs to be done, but the ministry doesn't stop, no matter what. It has nothing to it does not hinge on the money. If you're if you've noticed, I don't know if you're new uh, here or if it's never hit you, uh, we've never once passed a plate for money. It's never come across your hands, okay? That's intentional um, in, in ways that's stupid, but I, I, want, I, want, I want to let you know our thinking behind it. We never want to give anybody the impression that we are doing what we do, that we are laboring in the gospel and ministering the gospel to people so that, so that we can have your money, okay? Um, we don't want your money. Uh, God does, and he deserves it because it's a reasonable act of worship, and, and that's a whole other sermon for another day. But, but, but we stick a box in the back. In fact, we've had people come for like months or a year and finally come up to us one day and be like, do you guys even take our money at all? And it's like, yeah, it's a box back there. Like, you know, you can drop money in there if you want to. Like, that, that, it's not our thing. We, we don't believe that we have to stick that in front of you every single week to make sure that you're reminded that we need your money. God does not need your money. You know what I'm saying? It is an act of worship, a reasonable act of worship. For everything that you and I have and have been blessed with is his. Every, not, not 10% of it, not a tithe. Every bit of what you and I have and enjoy and live on and live in is, is his. He owns it all. So we can't outgive him and we can't make up for anything, right? But, so we give out of, out, out of what? The, the willingness of our heart, that which we each determine to give as we can give. And, and we just simply don't want to put any rocks in your bag when it comes to giving. We want you to be free. We want that between you and God, what you do, right? He's, he's God. He's capable of allowing you to find the box if you want to find it, okay? But we don't, we don't pass the basket. And that's one of the reasons why, okay? Okay. Um, we will never sell out, and I actually preached this sermon a few weeks ago, if you remember. We will not sell out in our message or our doctrine, the way that we preach the Bible, ever, to grow financially. We will not compromise uh, by the grace of God. It's not because we're not capable of it. All men are capable of it, I'm, fi I'm finding. Um, but but, but, but we, are, we, are, uh, we are determined together um, 
that, 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 that it's not really the size that matters or how much cash flow is coming in. It's what going on, what's going on in the lives of those who are sitting in your seats, even if that's 10 people or 20 people or 30 people. And so we will not sell out, which, which all of it takes money, the way churches are doing that, uh, for money. We're not going to do it here, okay? Um, and like I said, we're, we're ready at any moment to go back to earning our keep. We, the pastors at the door, live this way, and we think this way, and we minister this way because it's what our scriptures teach us. It's what Paul shows us. It's the tradition that's been passed down to the church and to leaders in the church, right? We do not want to give any impression that we're taking advantage of anybody in ministry and calling it ministry. We're not doing gospel work for money here. If we were, we wouldn't be focusing on a warming shelter and a food outreach program. You know who those people target or who those ministries target? A certain kind of people, and they're not the ones with deep pockets, right? If we cared about money in our gospel ministry, I'd be up at like Northwest Crossing or Sun River Resort. I'd go somewhere where there's actually money. We don't care. That's why we do the things that we do. If you, just, if you just look at what we do, it will tell you a lot about what we're about. And it ain't the money. Paul's saying here the primary reason he saw us take care of ourselves even though we had the right, even the mandate. Do you guys realize that? They even had the mandate from, from Jesus to be monetarily gifted and supported by the church. And yet they didn't when he was with them to demonstrate how each of us ought to be towards each other. That's what he's saying here. Not depending on others continually for your needs when you're capable, but handling your own business, standing on your own two feet, willing to be self-sustaining, or at least trying. So number one, a good leader leads the church by example first, even when it comes to good work ethic and being self-sustaining. Number two, if you're, this one's going to hurt a little bit, if you're not productive in taking care of yourself, you will be productive in something else. Does that sound funny? In other words, no matter what it is we're doing, we will find ourselves productive with something. This is verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I remember I used to, you know, I'd, see my dad basically every week I see him and I ask him how he's doing and what he's up to and the dude is my dad has always just had this crazy work ethic super good the dude's just a hard worker he's a server he's just always pouring out always doing always pouring out always doing um, with his life and I would be like 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 dad like what are you doing you should probably slow down a little bit why don't you like you know what I mean? Why don't you downshift a little, <laughs> a little bit? Um, and, and, and he would always say this phrase to me, oh, doing all this keeps me out of the biker bars, <laughs> right? Which is funny if you know my dad because he would never, ever walk. He never did walk into a biker bar, and he never would walk into a biker bar, right? It's a figure of speech, right? Keeps me out of the biker bars. It's a, sp it's a figure of speech for a reason, that being work, for our keep and service towards others gives us an occupation and a purpose that keeps us from doing stupid things. I mean, I, I know that firsthand. I've done it all my life. I'm, I'm an expert in this. When I get too idle, when I get too lazy, when I get too, too much time on my hands, 
I start wandering in, inventing evils, whether it's with myself or with others around me. It, 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 I, I become very productive in destruction toward myself and others. And, and this seems to be what's going on here in this church with these people. Right? It is not good for man to have too much time on his hands. In other words, work is yet another mercy of God on sinful fallen man. It is not just some form of punishment, but yet another form of restraint upon our propensity towards evil. They're bumpers, right? Given the opportunity, fallen man will find himself in all kinds of trouble simply because he has the time to do so. And, and, and so if we're not being productive toward earning our keep and taking care of our own business, we will oftentimes find ourselves, find our production being transferred toward destruction an opportunity to walk in things that are hurtful to ourselves or in this case, hurtful to others. The word Paul uses here is busybodies. You guys ever heard that word before? Busybodies. It doesn't mean that they were busy or active doing a bunch of stuff without accomplishing anything. That's not what it means. It means that they were busy with other people's business while not being busy with their own. Because of this, they became, and there's really just another word for this, gossips. Gossips. All right? They are troublemakers. They specialize in character assassination, whispers, divisions in the church. And this, knowing this, knowing that this is what Paul is really hitting at, allows verse 6 to make sense. Let me read it again. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not according to our tradition. See, that verse without this looks pretty strong and pretty heartless for just someone who's being kind of lazy in the body of Christ. Right? It looks a little bit extreme for Paul to say, for, for Paul to say such a thing, keep away from him until we realize why. He's telling us to keep away from them, right? And it's because they're poisonous. Or like we say in our day and age, toxic. People are toxic inside the church. In, in other words, it's not just because they're being lazy and irresponsible. It's more than that. It's because they're idle. And in their idleness, they became busybodies casting a net of venom. And Paul does not want us or the rest of them to get caught in that net. Right? That's why Paul's language is so strong, and that's why this matters so much. Listen, the greatest threat to the overall health and well-being of the church is really not that which comes from outside the church. It is really not the non-believer who doesn't know Jesus. The greatest threat to the health and well-being of the church is that which comes from within from inside, that which happens inside. And it, it comes in the form of gossips and slanderers, snipers. And I know because I've been one. I am ashamed to say. 
they're usually, they're usually the people that sit on the peripheral of the congregation, of the local church. They're not really insiders. They don't allow themselves to be. They usually sit on the outside, moving the crosshair at those on the inside. These people are the real takers. These are those that are really idle. Takers meaning not only people who do not own their, earn their own living, right, which is part of what we're talking about here. I'm not, I'm not taking it completely off to something else. So we're talking about people that aren't relying on handouts from the church, but, but also takers in the sense of people who approach the church to consume, who approach the church to consume. So a consumer mentality. So, so they're always coming to the church to withdraw, not to deposit. They're always making withdrawals in, in one form or another. So uh, it, it's a posture, it's, a, it's an approach of them being the most important person there in their minds, usually. A person who has not come to serve, but very much to be served on multiple levels. And so in this person's idleness and not being busy for others, they've become extremely busy about others. Listen, if you, if you guys want to look for and focus on flaws here at the door, um, you're going to have fun. There's so many of them. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to find them. There's so much to crucify us over. So much, you know. Uh, it, it, it would not be difficult at all to spot our deficiencies and weaknesses and blemishes and, and flaws. The question is, why do you want to? This is what I have to ask myself whenever I get into this mindset and I find myself doing Why? Why do I want to do this to these people whom Christ has died for? Why, why do I want to do this? Right. What, what is it that draws us into the practice and the participation of biting and devouring those who Christ has died for? There's probably a lot of factors that go into that. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, obviously. Uh, but Paul's answering one of them, idleness. Idleness is one reason why we fall into doing that, right? In other words, start taking care of yourself and serving others. <laughs> Worry about you rather than deconstructing those who are around you. Because this is so serious, because this is so serious, what idleness produces is so serious, we have number three. Takeaway number three, Discipline the disobedient. This is going to be a little tougher. In fact, some of you may not have heard this included in a sermon from the pulpit for a long time. Discipline the disobedient, verses 12 through uh, 15. Such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living for you. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be what? The shame. <clears throat> Do not regard him as a what? Enemy, but warn him as a? Okay. Uh, when we had a child in the home or, or, or if an employer has an employee that's not pulling their weight, when it comes to the responsibilities given to them, the answer is usually, let's ignore it and see if it self-corrects. Did that ever work in your parenting? Didn't work in our house. Right? 
Let, let's be silent and see if it leads to positive behavior modification, you know, and it, and it never did. No, we don't do that. We have a talk, right? We communicate. We, we address the issue so that it may be corrected, so that there might be repentance and restoration. That's the goal. Solution is repentance leading to restoration. That's what we work towards in the church. The problem is that most humans hate confrontation. Most. Some of you like it too much, which is a whole nother problem. But most of us hate confrontation. The other problem is that we don't confront well when we do confront. I'm very bad at confronting, you know. We do it oftentimes in anger and disdain rather than with the goal of love and the heart of love and the attitude of love towards reconciliation. So what we do a lot of times with confrontation is we ignore and we ignore and we ignore and we avoid and we stuff, right? Hoping that somehow it will fix itself, hoping that the offender will uh, wake up one day and take care of the responsibilities like good little new creations due to our positive, you know, our passive generosity and grace. Uh, and I wish it worked that way, don't you? But it doesn't. We, we don't work that way, right? So, so there must be confrontation. There must be a discussion, right, uh, leading to restoration. Why? Why must it be like that? Because we care. Because we love. It's the opposite of what you and I typically believe about confrontation. It's because we care that we do it. We want to be a blessing to that person as well as that person, the offender, to be a blessing, not a curse, to the family of God. We want everything all the way around. We want to bless them. We want them to be a blessing to everybody else. That, that's why we have talks. That's why we do things. That's why we challenge each other in love. We sharpen each other in love. Unity. Right? The offender is not the enemy. Paul tells us here in verse 15. He's not the enemy. What they're doing may be demonic, but they're not. And we need to remember that. Right? So we discipline the disobedient. We do not ignore it. We acknowledge it and we move towards solution. It is polite. We all know this. If you're a passenger in a car, to let someone know when their car has crossed over the center line. Right? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I would hope you think it's a good thing. I would hope that you would warn the driver your car has crossed over the center, the center line. Right? I, and I know that our current society and culture is teaching right now that love and respect is shutting your mouth and nodding your head up and down with approval at everything that somebody deems fit to do. Don't buy it. That does not belong in the church. We are not here to receive everything that someone chooses to do and justify and say, that's just great. It's not the way we work in here. That's not the way God works. That's not the way love works. If you love someone, you tell them danger is ahead. You tell them they've crossed into oncoming traffic. It's yet again the mercy of God when you belong to a church that loves you enough to call you on your bull crap. And I've needed this. I've like from experience over the years, those guys that have pulled me aside again in love. So they were for me. They were not trying to crush me. They were actually trying to lift me up in my sin and my struggle. I mean, what a blessing to have that in your life. People that will do that. People that will tell you the truth. People that will be honest 
with you when you're incapable of being honest with yourself. Right? It is the evidence of God's favor. Listen to this. This is super important. It is the evidence of God's favor and love for you when we experience his opposition in our sinful, selfish endeavors. Not the opposite. So when we feel like God is pressing on us and opposing us and like handling some kind of business on us in our lives when we're in the midst of, a lot of times we'll look at that and be like, oh, our punishment. No, no, it's the opposite. It's care. Like he's actually mindful of you. He actually cares about what you're doing and how you do it, right? Um, are you, guys, you guys are familiar with Hebrews 12. You don't need to turn there. You can, I've got to read a piece of this. I call this the woodshed. Okay, because that's really what, what it is. Listen to what's said there in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. In other, in, in other words, when, when he has just handled business with you and just taken you to the woodshed and you just feel completely, don't, don't, don't be in despair as if he's rejected you. He hasn't. You're feeling exactly how you should feel after he's done what he's just done to you, Right? For the Lord disciplines, here we go, those who he loves. He disciplines those who he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, when we had kids and and they would have friends that would come over to the house that were disobedient or that were just being idiots, um, I, I never felt like I could take these kids and say what I really wanted to say to them, how I wanted to say it, or take them into a room and spank them because they weren't mine. Right? The, the, only, the only one you really do that with are the ones that's yours. If you have a child, then, then, then you can exercise everything that needs to be exercised within what God's given us for their good, right? You only do it with your kid. You don't do it with other people's kids. This is the good news in what's being said here, that if you experience that from God, it means that he regards you as his. You're his child. How rad is that? I, I know it's painful, but how rad is that? Right? In fact, he goes on to acknowledge that here. It is for discipline that you have to endure uh, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. That's what I was just talking about a second ago, right? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them mostly. Right? Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The woodshed's awesome. It's awesome that we have a woodshed, that God loves us that much that he takes us there. If you never, ever experience his opposition and his challenge in your life, that's the scary part. Not the woodshed off in the distance. The scary part is that you go unchallenged by the God of the universe. It's frightening. Correction and discipline in the body of Christ by our Father God, which is often carried out through his children, right, within the local body, is not a sign of his rejection. When it happens, when we confront people or when we're confronted by somebody on something, it is not a sign of rejection. It's actually a sign of acceptance. Of acceptance. 
that we all belong to the same family. Now, someone like myself here and myself preach what I've just preached might say, well, like, where's the gospel in this, you know? Like, are you just telling people to go out and try harder to be better with their work ethic? How does Jesus make a difference in our approach to all of this? And my answer would be that a real experiencing of the gospel in our lives is what convinces us that true satisfaction is found in giving, not taking. There is a time to take, and we, me and my wife have needed it at times from the body of Christ. And I'm sure you guys have too if you've been in the body of Christ for any amount of time. There are, there are things we go through in life where, where God has designed it that we actually humble ourselves and we ask for help and we receive help. This is not that sermon, though, but we just need to know that. There are, there are times to, to take. There, there's a time for us to be dependent on each other, and the gospel is very much found there, too. But the essence of gospel is found in building up, not tearing down. Right? Who does that ring true for? Right? That it's better to give than to receive. Like Jesus said, does that ring true for everybody? No. No, it doesn't. It, it only rings true for the one who's been in a head-on collision with the God of the universe through the incomprehensible generosity of Jesus' gift on our behalf. In, in other words, if we have experienced the free gospel generosity of salvation, it does not cause us to want to receive more. It does not cause us to want to take more. Right? It causes us to ourselves become the dispenser of generosity. That's what the internal work of the gospel actually produces out of the believer, the one who's been captured by it. We're no longer the beggar once we've experienced the gospel. We're now the rescuer. Right? We're no longer the taker. We're now the giver. It comes in the full conviction that, that the greatest goods, the money in all of this, is found in beholding the one who had every reason to take every single thing away from us and tear us completely down, but instead gave, imparted, and built us up. See, the entire foundation of the church was built on a give, not a take, right? Uh, due, due to who our founder is. That was his tradition he passed on to us. That's what he displayed to us. Therefore, the entire DNA of the church is one of a give and not a take. There's no doubt that the greatest worker, the hardest worker that has ever been is God himself, right? The greatest giver. I see the work of his hands every day when I go outside and I look around. I see the work of his hands every time I consider my salvation. I see the man Jesus who labored in teaching labored in teaching, labored in traveling, labored in relationships, labored in self-denial, labored in holiness, labored in suffering, torture, mistreatment, labored in rejection, labored in carrying the instrument of his death to his death, labored in humility, labored in becoming sin, though there was none found in him and who labored against Satan and the powers of darkness so in that you and I may live. 
how can I know this? How can I believe this and enjoy this and own this and not labor and work and serve on basic levels for myself as well as for others? I do not know. Lord, I pray that if there's any way um, that is in me, even right now with this, even if I, as I've looked at this all week, I've been under a microscope with this, and I know that some of this garbage and this thinking and the tendencies is still there in me. I, I pray your forgiveness. I pray your cleansing work, God, uh, that the, this stuff would be uh, this poison that exists there when it exists there would, would be uh, evicted, that it would be eradicated. Um, I pray that we would understand, love, immerse ourselves in, meditate on more gospel every moment because that is the cure. That is the answer to having a posture of, of service and generosity rather than taking and destruction. And, and, and so I, I pray that uh, you would just do business right now with each of us, that we would, uh, that you would at least, at the very least, grant us uh, the mercy of honesty. Uh, we have nothing to be afraid of with you. Your son has already uh, been pierced for anything that we might find in ourselves that's ugly. And so, and so I pray no, that no one would be kept by their pride in, in trying to um, hide something that, that really can't be hidden from you. May we all be free to be seen more and to be known more by you so that we may be more like you in our conduct and our holiness and our relationships towards each other in the body of Christ. And we ask it to your glory. Amen.